Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode 11 of the CSB SCB podcast. With us today is Dr. Cheryl Kenville. Dr. Kenville is an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and she is an associate member of the School of Biomedical Engineering at McMaster University. She holds a bachelor's degree from Queen's University, and she completed her master's in biomedical engineering and her PhD in mechanical engineering, both at Western University. In 2018, Dr. Kenville was awarded the Petro-Canada McMaster University Young Innovator Award, which recognizes efforts to provide research opportunities to undergraduate students. Dr. Kenville was also one of the co-chairs of the 2016 CSB conference held in Hamilton, Ontario, which was chaired by Dr. Peter Keir. Previously, Dr. Kenville also worked as a survivability specialist, and we look forward to discussing a little bit more about what that means later on in our discussion. So Dr. Kenville, welcome, and thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this. So we all fall in our lives. Probably all of us have at some point slipped or stumbled over something or one of many other possibilities. And often that only hurts a little bit or it doesn't even hurt at all. And sometimes it maybe looks very funny too. And some people it seems can experience many of these events in their lives without ever facing any serious consequences, while others might just slip once while skating and then they walk away with a broken wrist or arm, for example. And we can wonder why that happens. And it seems like that is a question that you have asked yourself as well, because that's part of what your research is about. And I saw that you previously gave a seminar with the title, How Not to Break a Bone, which seems like a very useful thing to discuss. So with falls being one example, what are the most common causes of bone fracture? Great question. And this is one of the things that really interested me about biomechanics when I first entered it, is the fact that everybody is so different. And so you and I could both fall on the same ice and one of us would have an injury and the other one wouldn't. And that's what I find so fascinating. So yeah, people are injured certainly in falls. That's a, a major category for the, especially the older population, those with osteoporosis, reduced balance as, as we age and things like that. I deal a lot with other traumatic events. So things like car crashes, the automotive community was sort of the pioneer in a lot of injury biomechanics and developing injury thresholds and surrogates for testing protective devices. And then also there's some unique situations. So there's certainly athletic injuries that happen a lot. And also looking at sort of a military perspective, getting into a, a much higher rate loading So we look at scenarios that cross the spectrum of different loading rates and types of events, which keeps things very interesting for our group. But yeah, fracture, it's controlled by all sorts of factors as far as your health and your bone strength and the scenario itself, how quickly you're loaded, etc. So how not to break a bone is is a really complicated question that the answer is probably be a young, healthy male, but obviously not all of us are. And so we try to try to protect the rest of the population. Resulting from trauma or impact exposures, what type of fracture is the most common in people and what's the mechanism of failure there? 
That's a really good question. We tend to focus on fractures to the extremities. Those are the most common. I think most of us, at least know people, if not ourselves, have broken arms or legs. They're the most common location of fractures. There are other fractures that happen that can be quite devastating if you get sort of fractures to ribs and spine. Those can cause some serious implications to our other body systems. The mechanism is usually that we've exceeded the strength of the bone as a material. And so we look at critical stresses and strains and looking from a whole as far as the impact condition, it's often driven by the amount of energy that's applied to the limb or the body segment. Which of the trauma possibilities, I guess, that you listed is it that your lab focuses on most? We dabble in a lot of things, actually. Um, so I have a couple of students that are looking at hip fractures from falls in older adults. We've got a good group that's looking at sort of a defense-related mechanism. So working with Defense Research and Development Canada. If you picture police or soldiers going into a hostile environment, they'll often carry ballistic shields. And while those stop bullets, they actually flex and can break the user's arm. And the arm has been very historically neglected by most of injury biomechanics. So we're looking at those higher rate ballistic traumas. And I think that's one of the things that our research group is unique in, at least in Canada, looking at these military scenarios. And then we've also got some projects looking at the classic automotive collision type of loading. Just to follow up on that quickly, are these automotive collisions front impacts or are they more side related impacts? So we've been looking at the lower extremity, which is mostly the frontal collision. Rear impacts would be getting more into the whiplash mechanism. And then side impacts is more shoulder and, and hip and torso types of injuries. So we've been focused on the frontal to date. So people can experience the same trauma. And you brought up this example earlier that like you and I could slip on ice and one could walk away fine and the other wouldn't. And I guess possible explanations are that either our fall or stumble or the, the impact lo only looks the same superficially, but isn't really, or that something is different internally. Can you speak to some of the factors, external or internal, that can determine the injury outcome? So absolutely. I mean, you, you itemize that really well. There are external factors and there are internal factors. So if you and I both fell on a patch of ice, some of the external factors would be the posture that our arm takes when we land on our outstretched hand, how the bones of the wrist are positioned relative to each other, how much force we land with if we weigh different amounts and speed of loading, although that would probably be fairly consistent from you, for you and I on the same patch of ice. So those are, are some of the external factors that would come into play. You know, maybe you're wearing padded mittens and I'm not. And then the internal structure really gets into the materials and how well they can handle these types of impacts. So our age our overall health, you know, maybe I'm more predisposed to having low bone density, family history of it, and, and things like that would, would contribute to how well my bones would stand up to that type of impact load relative to yours. A term that we found that is used in some of your research is environmental contamination as another factor that can affect bone integrity. And what are some examples of contaminants and how do they affect bone health? 
This was an interesting sort of side area of research that's developed with my program over the past couple of years. And so it's been working with environmental collaborators, which is really exciting because I've always had a bit of a passion for environmentalism. And so we've looked at things like heavy metals and how those affect skeletal health. And there are other certainly ones such as PCBs and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and things like that. But these contaminants in the environment, they get into the drinking water, they get into the food sources. And so we've looked at them from animal health perspective. And so environmentally, it has been observed that certain populations that are in close proximity to sources of some of these contaminants have experienced a reproductive decline. And so we've looked at how this manifests as far as their skeletal health and whether that can be used as a proxy for local contaminants. So different heavy metals have a stronger influence on the bone health and can reduce the strength and lead to early fractures in some of the the skeletal systems. So it's been really quite interesting and it's nice to see that direct application that this will go into monitoring programs. That leads into the next question I was going to ask. So the papers I remember seeing from your lab about this were about, I think, snowshoe hares and otters. And so I was wondering if this contamination is mainly a non-human animal problem. Right. So we've been looking at it through the wildlife, and there are a lot of advantages to that. So we've done work with snowshoe hares and minks and otters. We've got minks going on right now. And they have advantages in that they're apex predators, so that you get the bioaccumulation through the food web, and so you you get a good concentration of the contaminants. They also have semi-aquatic living environments, can help with the exposure levels, and they have fairly limited home territories, which allows us to actually investigate their proximity to the sources of contaminants. But certainly environmental contaminants have an effect on humans, and this is actually a really important translational aspect of the research, particularly to indigenous populations who live in these areas and hunt and fish. It's definitely having an effect on their overall health as well. And so animals are easier for my lab to (laughs) acquire specimens and do those sorts of tests on. But there's certainly a parallel to human health and, you know, that progression of early osteoporosis that can happen from these contaminants. So building off this conversation of some of the causes and types of fractures, understanding that bone properties like strength and fracture toughness are affected by many interacting factors of the person and their external environment, how does your research group study bone fracture resulting from these traumas? You're investigating some very high energy and high loading rate scenarios here. So there must be limits to what can be tested on a living and healthy human. So can you discuss some of the approaches, the equipment, the tests that your group uses to recreate these impact or trauma exposures in the lab? Absolutely. So we don't do a whole lot on living people. When you're in the injury field, it's quite limited given the ethical considerations around that. So we do a lot of our work using postmortem human subjects or human specimens, so cadaveric tissue. And so our main piece of equipment in the lab is a pneumatic impacting apparatus or the smasher, as we (laughs) call it. I think this is a really cool piece of equipment. It's unique. It was custom made and it allows us to test specimens 
at a huge range of conditions. So we can change the amount of energy and the speed of impact, the posture that the specimen is held at, and we can recreate the loading that you would see if someone falls, which is sort of a three meter per second type of impact, right up to a military blast type of event outside of an armored vehicle, which is more in the 15 meters per second type of loading rates. So we take these specimens and we sometimes instrument them with strain gauges so that we can capture what's actually happening in individualized tissues. And we subject them to impacts that are as close as we can get to to what we are trying to represent. And certainly we're not firing bullets and, and things like that in the lab. So there is a, a certain level of approximation that goes on. And then we apply increasing energies until we see that there's a fracture that occurs. And then we can use statistical techniques to figure out sort of what a good safety limit would be for that. We also used a lot of paired specimens so we can compare conditions. So for example, if we wanted to look at falling on a, an outstretched hand at a certain angle and then at another angle, if we get the left and right specimens from the same donor, we can actually eliminate all of those confounding variables of someone being a little healthier than someone else or weighing a little more and treat them as equivalent. And we can really tease out a lot of these interesting relationships as to what factors really contribute to injury risk by using this paired specimen approach. Just as a quick follow-up on your smasher, as you called it, but the material testing system does the pneumatic mechanism of the system allow it to apply the high loading rates that you're trying to achieve as opposed to a more hydraulic material testing system? Yes. So we use a pneumatic system. It's It's been equated to a very expensive potato launcher by some people. So <laughs> it's got a tank of compressed air that we can pressurize up to sort of 60 PSI as we need. And then we release that very quickly and that accelerates a projectile down a tube, which then strikes our specimen. And so this gives us really good control. As I mentioned, we obviously can't do sort of ballistic rates, but what we are able to do is we can match the energy. And so we can look at behind shield type of impacts, how much energy is applied to the arm, and we can relate that to a more manageable impact that we can create in the lab. Cool. That was just purely out of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Using these cool machines that you're discussing, are there specific material or mechanical metrics that you and your group focus on for the study of injury and fracture mechanics? The first step is really trying to recreate the injurious scenario as best as we can. And so we try to target the speed of impact, the duration of impact, and then the corresponding energy. And then we increase the energy to cause the fracture while still keeping those other parameters in that realistic realm. As far as our outcome metrics, we certainly look at impact force as being a key one that's sort of historically been what injury biomechanics has used as their safety limits. So your leg shall not experience more than five and a half kilonewtons of force, regardless of what we are applying to you. As long as you're under five and a half kilonewtons, you are safe. So we do look at force and that, that's a really intuitive one and it allows us to compare with other studies. But we also look at energy to cause fracture. We look at strains in the bones as well. And then these relative comparisons to tease out how things like posture and loading rate affect fracture risk as well. And using this in vitro data on how the bone fractures, the next step 
that we've seen in a lot of your work is to define the bone fracture limits or thresholds. For people who are not directly involved in this type of research, can you first explain what is meant by a fracture threshold and how does something like this get determined? Absolutely. So when we do a test on a specimen, we will apply a certain amount of energy or a certain amount of force to it, and it will either fail or not fail. And it's a a very binarized outcome. And so there are statistical techniques that you can use that take the, and we'll use force as our example, that takes the impact force for the impacts that didn't cause fracture and the impact force for those that did cause fracture, and you can fit a survivability curve to it. And this is just an S-shaped statistical fit that tells you on your x-axis is the amount of force and your y-axis is your risk of failure going from zero, no failure, one to be guaranteed failure. And so... What industry can then do with this is they can say, we are willing to accept a 10% risk of injury. And they can go to this graph and say 10% risk of injury corresponds to this force. Therefore, when I'm assessing my safety systems, the force shall not exceed this value. And I think different industries have different acceptable thresholds, which is something that people aren't really comfortable with necessarily when they first learn it, that your car company is willing to accept that there's a chance that you will get hurt in a collision. But otherwise, we would all be driving around at five kilometers an hour wrapped in bubble wrap. So there has to be a certain level of risk that's acceptable. And some of that varies for body region to body region. So maybe we accept a little bit more risk of breaking a leg because most people won't die from that, but we accept less risk of someone fracturing their spine because it has such big potential implications for the participant. And so those force values that we get from the statistical techniques, we then translate those to crash test dummies, which are usually used for assessing safety systems. And it allows us to test future designs on how well they limit the risk to a person in that scenario. So as discussed in a lot of the in vitro testing, it it must be done on cadaveric specimens. And having been involved in some cadaveric research myself, many of the tissue samples come from aged donors with several comorbidities, with few opportunities to study the tissue in a really young and healthy state. So with the thresholds and these limits being developed off of data from an aged cohort and probably with a very variable loading history. Are there any adjustments or extrapolations that we need to make to these probability functions to represent a healthy population or for that matter, potentially any population that we might be interested in? Great question. And that's absolutely true. When we get these tissues, we aren't able to be as selective as we might like. And it's good that it's the older population that is passing away, right? We don't want young donors to be available. So there have been a few studies that have looked at the effective age on injury risk. And so there are some scalings that can be done to try and estimate for a younger population what the risk might have been. And, And usually, the younger ones have a, a higher tolerance. And this is really important actually for our work looking at the soldier type of populations because these do tend to be young, male, fit people. So using a 95-year-old grandma is not the most appropriate equivalence. We have a lot of challenges finding appropriate donors, though. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in is developing these mathematical relationships between age and size, how sex influences your injury risk, so that we can use 
specimens from the populations that are available, but still make good inferences about what that means for other populations. So right now we're looking at the effect of size and sex on arm fracture risk and in the hopes that we can develop some of these relationships. And so once you have this fracture threshold or the limit, or I guess, as you mentioned, it's more of a probability distribution function. So once you have that function developed, how is this function used in applied contexts? Fracture thresholds are usually translated to industry in a lot of cases. So this is that main outcome that people look for from these studies that we do is what is the tolerance associated with that body part under this loading scenario? We do a lot of work in making sure that that translates to crash test dummies appropriately. So Volvo can't take legs and <laughs> impact them. They use crash test dummies, and this is used in, in all safety systems evaluations. And so once we have these force or energy or acceleration limits, we translate those to crash test dummies, which are then used to test new safety devices. So in order to prevent these traumatic events, you mentioned it, safety systems are designed to redistribute and attenuate some of the forces that are experienced by the body. So what are some of the safety systems and devices that your group is interested in and how might they reduce the fracture risk? Again, sort of working all over the body. <laughs> From a lower extremity standpoint, we've done some work looking at energy absorbing floor mats. So this ties into when I worked at General Dynamics in survivability. One of the big pushes there was let's put these energy absorbing floor mats throughout the vehicles and that will protect soldiers' legs should they drive over an explosive event. But there was very little science to actually back that up as to how well it worked and which floor mat was the best one for that sort of scenario. So we've done work systematically investigating which floor mats provide the best protection. We've done a little bit of work on hip protectors and designing those through some of my undergraduate projects and looking at the potential to use 3D printing to help improve protective capabilities there. And then we've also got some work looking at simply just adding spacings and foams and things like that to the upper limb as well. And then I have another student actually who's just started a new line of research for us that's looking at the design of bike helmets. I also have another question to that. So crash test dummies, what are they really made of? Because when I think of, I just think of like a plastic puppet basically, but that, that's probably too simple. Uh, I actually don't know what is in them. Sure. Yep. So crash test dummies have been around for decades. They have evolved somewhat and they continue to evolve. But the basic composition, their skeleton, if you will, is metallic. So it is much more rigid than our bones are. And so there's a stiffness mismatch that goes on there that I think people need to be aware of. But it's driven by the fact that these are reusable devices. And so the test houses don't want them to fall apart to whenever they undergo a test. The soft tissue analog is, I believe it's a PVC that's molded and wrapped around to match the shape of the external surface of the dummy. And then there's some, some finer components. So like the heel pad is made of a special foam and there's some rub in the spine to provide a little bit of flexibility in that respect. Great. The next block of questions is about another big area of interest of yours, which is orthopedic device design. And we're not completely switching gears here, but basically just moving on to the next step when a fracture has occurred. And what comes to mind for me when I think of orthopedic devices is things like any type of brace. So where you try to 
stabilize or even immobilize to a certain degree the part of the body that's been injured and like just help to rest and protect it and support the healing process. But that maybe is not exactly what you do. So we see that you work with fractured plates, which seem to be special in that they are implanted. So they are designed to be an internal structure. And in a short video that I saw about your work, uh, you bring up arthritis and that the plates can help prevent it. Can you walk us through that? So how are these fracture plates used and how do they work? I think we're all familiar with bone being an adaptive tissue. And so you hit it right on. When you have a fracture, you do need to immobilize the site. But because bone is so adaptive, you actually want a little bit of relative motion at the fracture site, and that will stimulate healing. And so what I work on with fracture plates is really just an internal version of what you described. And so these are placed surgically through an operation to hold the bone fragments in place while that healing process occurs. And so I work with orthopedic surgeons who have great insight as to, you know, what are the current challenges associated with these? Where do they see, see them failing? So that's really a huge benefit to have those clinical partners. When you're designing a fracture plate, if you had a simple fracture, odds are you would get a cast or a brace or splint. But if you have a highly comminuted fracture, so there's a lot of bone fragments, and especially if it involves the articular joint surface, putting those pieces back together properly is really important and is often done with this surgical technique. And so they, they open up the patient and they place these internal splints against the bone and affix them using different screws to hold all the pieces together. What I've been really interested in is how fracture plates can be used to provide that stimulation to promote healing. And so if you have too little relative movement, it's an unloaded environment and you're not going to get as good of bone cell growth in those fracture gaps. If you have too much motion, it's the opposite. And every time the callus forms, it's going to get torn apart. And so you're going to take longer to actually heal. And so we use bench top approach. So again, using cadaveric material. And so we're really just representing immediately post-surgery because we can't simulate the healing and uh, process that happens with that. But looking at how the design and placement of plates affects how those fragments are held together and how well they get that optimal little bit of, of motion at the fracture gap to really promote healing. The post-traumatic Arthritis is a really big issue if you get a fracture that goes through the joint surface. And so I've seen studies where they've shown that if you have a slight misalignment in the articular cartilage after this fracture on the order of like two millimeters, you're almost guaranteed you're going to develop arthritis there very rapidly. And so, so that's really challenging for surgeons to put back together appropriately and even harder if you're not doing a surgical sort of approach. And so I think that's a really important thing to address and see if there are ways that we can better design these devices so that you get that smooth articular surface back and prevent patients from developing arthritis. How do you measure the relative motion between the bone fragments? 
This is something that we've been developing for a couple of years. It's been a lengthy process. We've been using an optical tracking system and placing clusters of markers on individual bone fragments and then calculating their relative motions and then transforming that into anatomically relevant motion. So how much of it is that that normal compressive strain at the fracture site versus with how much of it is in a shear direction. Yeah. How are the effectiveness of the fracture plates tested in your lab? You discussed looking at the relative motion between the bone fragments, but from more of a mechanical or structural perspective, I'm sure that there's material testing done on the plate itself independently, but is there any type of fatigue or even an impact test completed on the full bone that has been fixated with a plate configuration? So yes, the classic sort of outcome that people use for these sorts of studies is the stiffness and then the strength of the construct altogether. So they take a bone, they simulate a fracture, they put a plate on it, and then there's a certain degree of cyclic loading to investigate fatigue options, the stiffness of the construct in general, and then the ultimate ramp to failure that happens. So that's certainly the classic outcome, and that's one that we do look at as well. Um, We haven't moved into doing impact testing of reconstructed specimens because I would hope that this would be a very limited sort of scenario that would happen that while you are recovering from surgery, you would undergo yet another trauma. And so... So we haven't moved into the impact because they aren't really designed to resist that. They're really intended to hold the fragments together while the body does its work at healing. Yeah, you'd be in pretty rough shape if you had another trauma exposure while you're recovering. That would be unlucky. (laughs) So another area related to bone orthopedics that's come up is synthetic tissue or other surrogates that we can use to replace human cadaveric bone in some of the orthopedic research that you do. So with human bone, especially the trabecular component, having this intricate structure, what is synthetic bone currently being made of and how close are we to matching the structure and the mechanical behavior of the native cadaveric bone? So synthetic composite bones have been around for a while, since about the 90s, I believe. And so these are an engineered component that can be used in the lab to test joint replacements or fracture fixation devices without the complexities of working with cadaveric materials. So they are certainly appealing. They are less expensive. They don't need to be kept frozen. They don't need to be disposed of in a a unique way. You don't need gloves. It's all very controlled and consistent. So it's easier to do comparative studies. Where they are lacking is they don't represent the broad population necessarily. They are representing one geometry and one material property. And also those material properties, as you highlighted, are not exactly the same as natural bone. So the company that I've worked with that we see at a lot of orthopedic type of meetings is called Sawbones. They are very widely used and and well accepted. And so their bones, the trabecular bone is represented by a polyurethane foam. And then the cortical bone is represented by an epoxy resin that has glass fibers embedded in it. So these have gone through a range of iterations and a number of validation studies where researchers take these models that are generally sized to represent sort of an average population, although they do come in some different sizes, and test them in bending and torsion and axial compression to see whether their overall response matches that of cadaveric bone. And 
generally they are pretty good. Um, they, they fall within the natural realm. There are some challenges with getting it exactly the same in axial and torsion types of loading. And there hasn't been as much work done on the trabecular material because it's an injection molded type of process. We don't have those adaptations that we have in the human body. So it is certainly it's in the isotropic, it's a homogeneous type of foam. And, and so there are some simplifications there. And so maybe there's some work that could be done. But we've we've worked with that company as far as developing an osteoporotic femur model. And because there's so much interest in how implants work in the osteoporotic population that have much poorer bone quality to to begin with. And so, you know, how much should that cortex be thinned and how much should the density of the materials be reduced so that it can accurately represent the natural population's response. And so they're really fantastic as far as comparative studies and opening it up so that more labs can do this sort of research, ones that maybe aren't affiliated with a hospital or in a, a school of anatomy and don't have those capabilities. So I think they're a really promising tool, but you need that little asterisk about their limitations still. As with any surrogate or material. Exactly. <laughs> we briefly mentioned it in the introduction, and now we're hoping to learn a bit more about it, that at an earlier point in your career, you worked as a survivability specialist. And we were wondering, what is that? Sure. So specialist, because I was not a professional engineer, they could not call me an engineer in my role, but it, it was basically a survivability engineer. I worked for a company called General Dynamics Land Systems Canada, and so they're based in London, Ontario, and they design and manufacture armored military vehicles. And so this was a really exciting company to join and apply some of my knowledge on biomechanics. And so as a human survivability specialist, my role was to protect the occupants of the vehicle. And so within the survivability group, we had those who were involved in armor design and the shape of the hull design to try and deflect any attacks or blasts that would happen. And then I was focused on the interior of these vehicles and what safety systems could be integrated to protect soldiers if they were to, say, drive over a bomb. And so a lot of this was focused on safety seating. So when a military vehicle goes over an explosive, there's a large impulse that comes up through the floor. The deflections of the floor cause foot and ankle injuries, and then the whole vehicle accelerates upwards, which causes a lot of spine injuries. So I mentioned the floor mats, which was one of the solutions for protecting the lower extremity. And then we did a lot of work looking at energy absorbing seating to try and reduce the incidence of these spinal fractures, which are absolutely devastating, especially if you're in a hospital environment. And so this involved doing a lot of drop tower testing, working with crash test dummies to see how these different systems could absorb energy and mitigate the risk to the occupants. So it was really an exciting time and very rewarding to see testing that I do immediately get integrated into the vehicle. That is really cool. I always feel like there are more jobs out there that might be really exciting that we don't even know about that they exist. For grad students who are interested in injury and trauma biomechanics, are there some jobs that you know of or like a common industry path that possibility for employment later on? 
So I've had a, a few of my previous grad students and even a couple current ones do work with the forensics uh, and accident reconstruction industry. So that's a very logical path to apply a background in injury biomechanics as far as understanding the mechanisms of trauma and applications of injury tolerances. But I've had other students go to medical startup companies, med school, some just go work as, you know, regular old mechanical engineers, which there's nothing wrong with that. So it's really neat to see where they go. And, and a good number have actually gone on to do grad studies, which is really exciting too. So sharing the, the passion for research. Moving on to a little bit about some funding. You received research funding in the past from NSERC for some mechanistic work related to fracture. And I recently saw that your CIHR grant was successful. So first, congratulations on that. Thank you. And do you have any advice for basic science researchers who might be very NSERC focused in the past to address some related research issues from a different lens, similar to how you might be doing with your CIHR grant? I can try. I'm newly successful in the CIHR world, and this certainly, it wasn't on my first kick at the can. As far as advice, I would say getting a clinical partner for a CIHR is really crucial, and I've been very fortunate to work with some great, great health sci sort of folks who have a strong track record in CIHR funding. And I think that's been really beneficial as far as emphasizing the translation of the research and also providing a little bit of pedigree and sort of some support that this can be done. I also would really recommend trying to seek out people who've been on these panels and getting them to review your grants and give you advice. That's one of the things that I've changed most in the past year and a half is being willing to ask people to read my grants for me. And the people who've been on panels, they have such a wealth of knowledge about what really matters. So that that's certainly something that's helpful. With CIHR, you know, I, I think a lot of people see it as a very daunting thing to go into. So I would suggest just try and get that first round of feedback and then try again and get your second round of feedback and then try again and get your third round of feedback and just keep improving it and know that it, it is going to be a lengthy process. And I think another thing that made a difference in this round as far as being successful is getting letters of support. And so having sort of those industry or, or healthcare provider partners who can, can really speak to the fact that your work is important, I think that really helps set things apart as well. So aside from teaching research and acquiring funding to do your research, being in academia comes with certain expectations for service. And some examples could be joining examination committees, peer review process, participation in societies and committees and public outreach events, probably many, many more. Is there a service initiative that you are passionate about? And can you tell us a bit about it or them if you have multiple? My big service role right now is that I'm associate chair for my department um, and so responsible for the undergrad population. It's a substantial role. There was a learning curve, certainly, but I find it to be incredibly rewarding when students are struggling and they need help figuring out how to reorganize their courses or you know, how to get better support so that they can pass their exams. I think that's a very clear way to have an impact on the undergraduate population. And so that's been a really exciting one. And then my other one that I really care a lot about are women in science and engineering initiatives. I've been involved in the Women in Engineering Committee 
since I was an undergrad, basically doing conferences and speaking and mentorship. And I think that's such an important initiative and it helps keep me from getting cynical because I see all these young, enthusiastic women who are coming up through the ranks. And so that gives me a lot of hope about the future. And it's nice just to get that camaraderie as well. So that's certainly a passion of mine as far as service. To end this episode, the last thing we have for you is uh, five rapid fire questions. And please try to answer in uh, each in one sentence or less. So number one, If you could choose any animal, still alive or extinct, doesn't matter, to study its bones or fracture a risk, which would it be and why? So I've always had interest in cheetahs. My grandparents lived in Kenya for a year and they had always had pictures of cheetahs and things around their house. So I've always had a, a certain affinity for cheetahs and I think their bones would probably be really interesting to study. And then my collaborator with the snowshoe hares, we had talked about doing a study on narwhal tusks and that didn't happen. And I still think that would be a really amazing thing to study. So I, I'm giving two answers for that one. <laughs> Number two, you're active on Twitter. Which of the accounts or people you follow is your favorite these days? It can, but does not have to be work-related. So when COVID hit, I started following a lot of sort of the, the doctors and medical professionals, which I think is a, a really great way to get some information. But I find that sometimes Twitter can really get me down. So I'm going to say that my favorite account to follow is We Rate Dogs, um, because it's just always brings a smile to my face. Awesome. Number three, is there a sport or other activity that you have never tried but would like to? This is not going to be very creative, but I'm a skier through and through. And I think it would be really fun to try snowboarding. And I've never had the opportunity. I think I need someone to teach me and very, very padded snow pants. But I'd like to try it sometime. <laughs> be careful of the foosh fall. I did it once and I almost broke both my wrists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good tip. Thank you. And then you can just go straight to the lab and be the next participant in the study. <laughs> Number four, what was your favorite thing about being a graduate student that you don't get to do as a faculty member? Yeah, so my favorite thing as a graduate student was probably the, the other graduate students. We had a very close-knit group. We had a, just a blast every day, hanging out, playing tunes, going to conferences, troubleshooting all together. And I, I feel like I have a fantastic lab group and fantastic colleagues, but still a large portion of my job is quite independent. And so I do miss a little bit of that intense interactions that you get with your coworkers as a grad student. And number five, if you had to pick a topic outside of biomechanics or medical mechanical engineering to complete a research project on, what would it be? I'm not really sure as far as a research project. Um, I, I thought about this one for a little bit, but I always said that if I wasn't going to be an engineer, I think I would have liked to have been a lawyer. So I'm not really answering your question, but that's sort of my, my side answer to your question. <laughs> we'll take it. All right. So that concludes our 11th episode with Dr. Cheryl Kenville. Dr. Kenville, thanks so much again for being here to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the use of MRI in biomechanics research applications with Dr. Emily McWalter from the University of Saskatchewan. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app.